Well, good morning and welcome to Encounter. My name is Tim. If we've never met, I am the executive pastor here, and it is great to be with you, whether you're uh, in your house, watching online, watching online during the week, or here live at Kentwood. Uh, it, it's great to be with the church family, and um, I'm excited. I'm excited about this morning, mostly. We, uh, we're in a series on politics, and so uh, we're calling this series, In God We Trust. And it really is timely uh, as our nation goes through so much as we struggle through this time together. And we're taking three weeks and we're looking at the phrases, one nation, under God, indivisible. And so last week, Dirk taught us uh, and reminded us uh, as we began this series that we are ambassadors. We are ambassadors of hope and light to a world that desperately needs it. And that this nation is not our first allegiance and our first home. And we're going to continue in that thought and talk about what does that mean uh, that we are a people who are first under God. And I want to start by asking you a question this morning. How are you? Now, I don't mean to ask in the, you know, you're walking down the street and there's like, you know, a neighbor. How are you? Fine. Or in the hallway or whatever. Um, but really... How are you? Because I suspect if you're like me, you're maybe not as fine as you were seven months ago. Right? We are living through a global pandemic that has upended our lives. At the same time that we have this physical pandemic, we are facing the scourge and the evil of racism that has erupted in our country. At a time when we couldn't be more politically divided. And everything becomes about politics. Everything becomes about choosing a side and having a side. We know this last night. It, it, last night there were protests and counter-protests in Portland and a person was shot and killed. And we know it was political because they had the shirts and the signs. We know it went beyond just the issue straight to politics because that was what was advertised, and it got ugly, and it got violent, and a person lost their life. We're all trying to figure out how to get back to school, how to get back to normal. And so again, that's why I ask, how are you? I have a non-professional theory. Um, my non-professional theory is that uh, all of us have a natural resting level of anxiousness, right? You know, like you have a, a natural resting heart rate, I think we might all have a natural level of anxiousness, right? And whatever that is. Like I had a friend, Steve, and Steve is the most chill person you ever met. Like on a scale of one to 10, he's a 0.5, right? He's more chill awake than I am asleep, right? Just nothing bothers Steve, right? And, and so whatever your level is with everything going on, uh, I believe we're all a couple notches up. Right? So if you're normally a super chill person, you might just be a chill person. If you were always kind of chill, you're maybe like kind of not chill. Our anxiousness is raising. Now, just an ADD moment here. If that level of anxiousness in you has gotten to the point that it's disrupting your life, please go get help. We would love, you can email encounterchurch.org slash help. Uh, so many of us would tell you one of the best decisions we ever made in our lives is being honest about how we're doing 
uh, in our emotional health and getting help. And so if what's happening in the world today has pushed you to that point, please get help. Please email us. Uh, we'd love to help you. Also, I mentioned ADD. If you have ADD, you should get help. But mostly, um, please uh, see a professional if what's happening in this world is pushing you too far. But we're all living in this world, and I think there's maybe three dominant feelings of anxiousness that arise out of it. One is anger. We are an angry people right now. We're angry at the other side. We're angry at the injustice we see. We're just angry. Uh, kids are angry. You know, college, I can't imagine, like, starting college, right, thinking when you left college, you'd be coming back, or maybe you're starting your year out to, like, normal dorm life and meeting friends, and now you're trying to figure this out. But for some of you, that is so much better than being at home right now because you just can't take another argument. You just can't take not being listened to. And so while you're trying to figure out college, you're trying to figure out how to navigate your relationships. And this isn't just for those of us who are uh, of voting age, right? We know that uh, so anxiety is contagious. And so we know if there's anger in your home, if there's anger in your life, that's spreading to our kids, to our teenagers, to our children. And so one response is anger. Another is ambivalence. Maybe it all becomes too much, and you just want to throw your hands in the air and say, I can't deal with any of it. I just, I don't want to, I don't deal with anything. I can't deal with it. And I'm, you know, like, there's, there's, like, healthy boundaries, but then there's also walking away from the human and huge issues at our time, and we can't walk away from our relationships. We can't walk away from the struggles of this world. Like Dirk was saying last week, we're ambassadors of hope and light, and that ambivalence, that hopelessness isn't a great response either. And maybe it's fear. Maybe your response has been fear. You're afraid. You're afraid of the results of the election. You're afraid of what's going to happen this week in the news and what you're going to read about. You're afraid of Thanksgiving dinner. We're afraid. And it spreads. And we have to deal with it. And we have to figure it out. So we're going to come back and talk about that, about how you're doing and how I'm doing. But first I want to pray, and we're going to talk about someone else. God, I thank you uh, this morning that you are here and that you are present and that you promise us your spirit and that you promise us peace. And that's what we ask for this morning. We ask that this uh, time together would be an, uh, an exhale and that spirit, you would give us peace and your presence. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So let's start by talking about Joshua, actually. And not the Josh who did the announcements, but Joshua from the Old Testament. Um, Joshua, he's got his own book written about him. Joshua was the leader of God's people who took over after Moses. And because of that, right, if you've ever had a job or a role where you took over after someone who was amazing, you kind of get overshadowed. I think that happens to Joshua, Right, when we think about like the movie Prince of Egypt or God taking his people right out of Egypt, out of slavery, into the promised land, um, Joshua can be a little overlooked because of Moses. And you know, Moses is amazing, and, but Joshua took over Moses, and Joshua's story is pretty incredible. So Joshua was kind of like Moses' assistant after uh, God had caught, gotten his people out of Egypt. And while they're then wandering in the desert for 40 years. And uh, Joshua was like a military commander, he was Moses' assistant. And um, Joshua was one of the ones uh, that at one point 
uh, God's people, they're roaming in the wilderness. God is calling them to the promised land. The promised land is the place uh, that will be their home, where God will be their king. And, like, this is cool. God was like, you don't need a person king. You don't need a person to find your hope, and you will have me, and this will be your place, and I'll be your king. And so they're wandering, looking for the promised land. And at one point, they come really close, and they send a dozen spies into the promised land. And it's scary. There's other nations, and they got to sort all that out. Um, And only two of the spies came back and said, we should go. It's dangerous, but that's where God is calling us. That's the promised land we should go. One of those spies was Joshua. It was Buddy Caleb. All the rest were like, no, it's too scary. They're too big. We'll never do it. We shouldn't go. We shouldn't try this. What is God calling us to? We should go back to Egypt. We would be better off in Egypt. And so God lets them then wander more. And as a result, all of the men of like fighting age, all the people uh, who would lead and be a part of going into the promised land, all of them died except Joshua. Joshua's faithfulness is what allowed him to see the promised land. Even Moses didn't see the promised land. Moses died uh, like right on the border looking at this land that God had promised to them. And this is how, Mo- this is how Joshua is described. So Joshua is described in four, Joshua 4.14, um, the day that they crossed into the promised land. It's this. That day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him all the days of his life just as they had stood in awe of Moses. Joshua is as big a deal as Moses. And this day, what had just happened was that they crossed the Jordan, right? We've seen the movie. uh, The wind comes. The water stays still. God's people walk across dry land into the promised land. And now they're camped on that side. They went from one side of the Jordan River to the other. It's a miracle. God has brought them there. They can see Jericho in the distance. And Jericho is... Uh, the first battle they're going to face as they come to the promised land. And so they're, they're camped, and they're getting it sorted out, and that's where we're going to pick up a bit of the story of Joshua. So we go ahead to Joshua chapter 5, and it says, when Joshua, uh, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Now, there's some parts of that story we don't get. Uh, We can assume he was alone, right? We don't hear about other people. And I would love, like, I can picture that Joshua is taking this walk, and he's thinking, he's reflecting on all that had happened. Right? If you've ever had one of those, um, like, amazing turning point moments in your life, Right, And you've been down this long path, and it's about to come to reality. That's what's happening for Joshua. He had gone from being one of the only faithful ones who said, we can do this, to wandering in the desert, to seeing God's faithfulness, to being called by God as the leader of his people, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, to cross the river. Pretty amazing stuff. And I have to imagine he's reflecting on it. He's alone. There's nervous energy. And then all of a sudden in front of him, is a man. And we don't know whether that initial appearance was it looked like a regular sh- soldier or it looked like an angel soldier. Side note, all angels in the Bible are like big, huge, scary warriors. There was never an angel that appeared that was like the friend, like they were just big and scary. I think we can infer that, that Joshua knew there was something special about this person. 
uh, in how he responded and how he believed him. But, you know, you're in a foreign land. All of a sudden, this person you don't know is in front of you with a sword. And so Joshua asks the question, are you for us or for our enemies? And you would assume, if you didn't keep reading, that if it's the army, uh, the, the leader of the army of God, or God himself, could be interpreted that way. The leader of heaven's armies, who has called you out of slavery into the promised land, meets you on the battlefield, and you say, are you for us or against us? That the answer is going to be, I am for you. Let's go. But God's answer was neither. Neither, he replied. For as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And maybe that was a weird moment for Joshua to go, well, I thought, thought like you were in charge and you were leading us. And if ever there was a person in the history of the Bible who could kind of shift their understanding to, look, God is basically going to bless everything I do. I've done everything right. Uh, he's going to say to me, what do you want to do, Joshua? I'm going to give him his orders and we're going to go. But that's not what happened. Joshua didn't take an approach that he was the man. Because Joshua had believed in God faithfully and he's lived out that faith. And despite every reason for him to think that maybe um, he could tell God what to do, look at his response. He fell down in submission to God. So let's look again at 14. Neither, he replied, but as commander of the armed Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? What message does my Lord have for his servant? You get the impression that if in that moment God said, you know what, turn around back to the wilderness, that Joshua would have said, okay. Joshua's life, his leadership, everything was submitted to God. And his posture was one of service. And I think this is something we tend to miss. Uh, I think what Joshua had right was the three orthos. Three orthos. And if you've hung around church world a lot, some of these maybe you've heard of, uh, church phrase. So the first ortho is orthodoxy. Orthodoxy, which essentially means right belief. It's something... Um, Churches for years and centuries have fought for and have taught, uh, right, we want to make sure we have the right beliefs about God and about Jesus, the right understanding of the scripture. And clearly Joshua had a right belief. He was the only one who believed that God was calling him into the promised land. He had a right belief about who God was, and that's important for us. He, there's also orthopraxy, or orthopraxis, which is right practice or right worship. That along with having the right belief, the Christian life following Jesus means sort of the right practice, the right worship, the right way of living our lives in worship to him. And Joshua did that as well. He was faithful. He went where God went. He did what he was told. But there's a third one, and this was introduced to me by a former pastor, Dave Rodriguez. I don't know if he made it up or where he got it, but um, it's right posture. That along with our right belief, along with our right practice, is the right posture. And that too often in our conversations um, about faith and about the Christian life, we might have the right idea and we might have the right sort of action in mind, but our posture isn't there. We're combative. Um, we don't want to serve. We don't want to care. We don't want to think of others first. 
posture matters, and we don't always respond like Joshua. And the reason, the reason posture matters is that um, the words we just sang at the end of that song are true, um, and it's this. It's that Jesus is for you, but Jesus is also for them. Whoever that them is in your life, Jesus is for you, and Jesus is for them. And we need to dig into that concept a little bit, um, because it's easy to think in terms of us and them. It would have been easy for Joshua to go, wait, we're the good guys. We're your people, God. They're the ones we're going to be battling with. How can you say you're not for us? But it's one thing to be for someone and to believe in them and be cheering for them. And it's another thing to, like, support their ideas or actions. Right? We can be for someone despite their ideas and actions. For example, I'm a twin, which I, it's, like, it's, like, weird when you're an adult. It's, like, cute when you're an identical twin and you're a kid, but... I don't know, it can be weird when you're an adult. I'm an identical twin. It can be a lot to handle. And, but when my twin and I were little, our older brothers showed us how to unscrew screws with a screwdriver, particularly like doorknobs and stuff. So when my brother and I were little, we decided to ravage the house and unscrew all the doorknobs in the house and bury them in the backyard. Now, our parents were for us. Right, loving us, caring for us, believing in us, wanting the best for us, not so excited about bearing the door handles. Also, not so excited that our older siblings showed us how to do it and were probably laughing when we did. They got in trouble too. Right? We know this as parents. We are for our kids. But it, if your kids lie, you're not for that. Most parents are not for the state of your kids' bedrooms. If you have a roommate that you love and you're like, this is the greatest roommate ever, this thing works, our situation is fantastic, you can be for them and believe in them, but not for the way they don't clean the dishes. Or maybe you're not for the way they eat your leftover food. You're for them, but you're not for the people they bring over late at night. You might have a best friend that you love and you are rooting for and cheering for and you believe and no one, no one supports them like you do, but you are not for the relationships they're choosing to engage in. You can have a, a spouse, the love of your life that you have committed your life to and so you are for them and cheering them on and on the same level, you might, not be, you might not be for the temperature they like the house, but you also might not be for their addictive behaviors. We can be for people, but not for their ideas and their actions. And so we have to understand about Jesus is that Jesus is for us. I believe those words are incredibly true, that the God of the universe is for you. He loves you. Jesus loves you to death and back. I believe those words that we sang are the words the world needs to hear. The protesters that were fighting last night needed to know that God is for them, but he's for us despite our choices, despite our ideas. He loves us so much that no matter what we do, he's for us. I don't know how to handle it, but I believe that Jesus is for the man who died last night, and he's for the man who shot him. He's not for what happened, but his love is that big. His love is that great, and we can be like, we can be where we're not like Joshua, and we can forget that God is for whoever the them is in our lives. And that's what happens when we give our allegiance to a political ideology. We say we have to go with what, that, what they say first, 
as opposed to God's view of people, Jesus' view of who we are. And our beliefs and our practices, they need to flow from Jesus. Our posture needs to flow from Jesus. Jesus is described, Jesus' posture is this. Jesus is described in Philippians as letting go of his rights. At a time where everybody's like arguing about rights, the, the image from Philippians is that Jesus let go of his rights to being God so that he could be a person. And how different would our political engagement be if we said, I will let go of my rights, of my beliefs, so that you might know Jesus. I would let go of my rights if it meant my kids would follow Jesus. I would let go of my rights if it meant the world would know how desperately he loves him. That's the posture of Jesus. And that's where our political engagement needs to flow from. Now, it can be a little hard to relate sort of how our politics work in terms of Jesus because Jesus, like, he was here 2,000 years ago in Israel. Jesus was a Jewish man living in Israel while Israel was occupied by the Roman Empire. Right? So he's in a nation that has an outside occupying force in control, so everybody really wants them gone. And he's Jewish. I know that there's like pictures of Jesus and he's oddly Caucasian. He's got like an American eagle on his shoulder and, you know, American flag. Like, his political approach wasn't like, it doesn't relate to who we are today in practical terms. So we have to look at his posture, his beliefs, and how he acted. And we get a beautiful example of this in how he taught his disciples to pray. Um. This, the, uh, we know it in the church world as the Lord's Prayer. Maybe you heard it a lot growing up. It's something everybody recites in King James a lot. And this was uh, Jesus not just praying, but showing his disciples how to pray. And what you get in Jesus' example uh, is sort of Jesus' political view of the world. You see, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he taught them to pray about God's will. He taught them to pray that God's will, the way God runs heaven, would happen on earth. When we say the phrase, um, thy kingdom come, your kingdom come, what that prayer is is saying, God, we want this place to operate the way that place operates. We want to live in a world, God, where you're the king. And we want your will, God. We want what you want. The same way what you want happens in heaven, we want to happen on earth. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is a prayer that says, God, we want, heaven, we want earth to operate the way heaven does because it would be so much better. That was Jesus' political stance. That even at a time of political turmoil with an outside occupying force, the ultimate solution would be that God was in charge and in control of people's lives. So Jesus didn't vote, but he prayed. So when we follow Jesus' example, we align our politics around those three things, right? What do I believe about Jesus? What is my right belief about Jesus? How does that inform my politics? What does it require of me? What has Jesus called me to do? What is my right practice as his ambassador? And then ultimately my posture, who do I love? Who do I love? Because in the middle of this, we have to have the right beliefs of how to solve some of the world's pains and hurts and problems. And we can take right actions, but we can never lose sight of the people. We can never lose sight of the posture that these are the beloved of God, that these people we're surrounded with, Jesus is for them. 
I was listening to a podcast about an organization in Jacksonville uh, who counts homeless people. They count homeless people because they can be hard to keep track of and their risk levels. Um, and we know that this, like, caring for those in need is at the heart of the gospel. It's at the heart of who Jesus was, having compassion and care for those in need. And so this organization does that, and they count the homeless people. They see what help they can provide. And then once a year, they hold a funeral service for all those who have died that year and had no service. And there's a woman who every year gets to do the same thing at this service, and it's her honor because of her posture. She gets to explain that there are six types of homeless people in the world. And you might think that that's going to be, you know, sort of like, okay, we're going to get into some years ways to understand, you know, different ways people get homeless. But no, she says there are six types of homeless people in the world. There are mothers and there are fathers. There are sons and there are daughters. And there are brothers and there are sisters. And friends, we need to engage that problem, the problem of uh, children not having enough to eat, of people not having homes, right? We need to engage in that politically. We need to engage in that practically. And we can have all different ideas of the right approach, the right way to solve the problem. But let's never lose the broken hearts that these are people's moms and dads and sons and daughters and brothers and sisters. Let's never lose the posture that these are people that Jesus is for, that these are people that Jesus loved to death and back. And so as we continue, as the season moves on, and we continue to engage political world in everything that's happening around us, I would offer two posture-oriented questions for political engagement. And maybe these are questions that you ask yourself, right, before you make the Twitter post, right, before you repost the meme or argue with your cousin on Facebook. Before you rant and rave, these are the questions to ask ourselves to make sure our posture, our ortho posture is in place. And these two questions are, what breaks your heart and who are you for? What breaks your heart and who are you for? So in my previous life in Indiana, I was a youth pastor and um, uh, my last role at the location I was at was a really diverse, unique group of kids, super awesome group. And uh, about a year and a half ago, two years ago, we were sitting in a circle, I think it was before spring break, um, it was either before spring break or summer, and we were discussing what everybody's vacation plans are. And, you know, like, it's youth ministry, so you do a get-to-know-you question, and, you know, you do to start your lives. And so, yes, yeah, a question everybody can share. And so we were asking, um, if you could go anywhere on vacation, if you go anywhere on vacation for spring break or for summer, where would you go? It's just a way to get to know people, a way to talk. Uh, and there was a girl who said, uh, I, I would just want to go somewhere where I won't get lynched. Her skin was a lot darker than mine. We were a really diverse group of kids. They'd seen it on the news. And her answer broke my heart. Where normally that discussion is, you know, joking around about, well, do you want to go to Italy or where are you going to go? It was, I just want to go where someone in this country won't try to kill me because of the color of my skin. I broke my heart. And I hope it never heals. I hope someday we find the solution to racism and hate. But I, and it is a complicated problem. 
and it is going to require complicated solutions and um, political action, and we can have all the best ideas in the world, and we can disagree about those ideas, and we can take all the actions in the world, but ultimately these are real people, and this is a real teenager having to answer a question in a way no teenager should have to answer. And that's the posture of Jesus, the posture that says, but I love you, and I'm for you, and this isn't right, and I care about you. And so ask those questions of yourself. What breaks your heart? Who are you for? And let that inform politics. Because probably an even better statement, I know earlier I said Jesus is for you and Jesus is for them. It's probably more accurate to say that Jesus is for all of us. Jesus doesn't see an us and a, a you and a them. He sees an us. Jesus didn't come to take sides. He came to take over. And his takeover was not a military-style victory. It was the ultimate act of service and love. And that's what he invited us into, that lifestyle of service and love. And Jesus' call in your life isn't to win an argument. It's to point people to him, to point people to the source of hope and life and light. Under God means that his ways and his priorities are what come first in my life. They're my ways and my priorities, or they should be. That he is the one we're arguing for. He is the one that we're inviting people into, relationship with him, not a political ideology. In a world that is anxious, angry, and afraid, the answer is a deep and abiding faith in Jesus. And Jesus promised he would send his spirit to those who put their faith and trust in him. So we don't have to solve all their problems. We have to help them get to know Jesus. And our political Ideas and actions flow from that. They flow out of the fact that a world that desperately needs Jesus. You have the Spirit of God in you. And so that's why we point people to Jesus, so that we can let him do the work. And that's what Jesus asks us to do. So the last thing Jesus offered to his disciples when he left... Uh, after his death and resurrection and his ascension into heaven, the last thing he did uh, was what we know as the Great Commission. So we sort of understand this as the Great Commission. It's a very famous, it's in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And the Great Commission, uh, again, if you grew up in the church, is go. Go and make disciples. Which we would understand is go and teach people about me. Go and teach people about the hope and life and forgiveness they can have. Go. Point people to Jesus. But what's great about it, and maybe something we tend to miss, is that that sentence begins with a word. So I know school is starting, but we're going to do a little bit of English lit right now. That sentence doesn't begin with the word go. It begins with the word therefore. Begins with the word therefore. And what do we know when we come to a sentence that begins with the word therefore? The sentence before it matters, right? A a sentence that begins with the word therefore is the application of something that was said right before it. So if our great commission is to go and make disciples, if that is the application, if that is the practice of something, what what is the truth, what is the statement that calls us to go and make disciples? And it's this. The first phrase of that is, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. 
through his death and resurrection on the cross, all authority on heaven and earth is given to Jesus. Therefore, we can go and make disciples. But it doesn't just end at a great, so it begins with a great truth, a great belief that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. And it continues then into a great commission, a great call to action, a great practice, go and make disciples. And it ends with the greatest promise. That section of scripture ends with, and I will be with you. And I will be with you. That this is, Jesus is not a distant God. He is not a distant Savior who sends us to go do stuff and report back later that he is with us. We have the great truth, the right belief that he is in charge. We have the call to the practice of pointing people to him. And we can take comfort in the promise that he is with us. And so if you're angry, you can set your anger down and lay at the feet of Jesus because he's in charge. If you're ambivalent because you don't know what to do, you can take a step of pointing people towards Jesus. And if you're scared and alone, you can know that he is with you. He is with you and he is for you. Let me pray. God, I thank you that your call in our life comes from your reign and your rule in our life. That your work, the work is complete, you've done it, and that you're in charge. And I thank you that you're with us and that we can take comfort in that. That we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be alone because you're with us. And so through these times where the world is desperate for hope, God, God, would you give us the posture that points people to you, that they might find hope and peace. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.